Good morning, beloved. It's good to be back together to, to worship our God in joy. Um, there is something about humans that we are created as decision-making beings, and we are always making these decisions and based are just in light of how we interpret the circumstances around us. And so um, we, we see something and we have to decide how we're going to respond to that. Um, and often what we're having to make a decision about is the truthfulness of some claim. And that's what we're going to wrestle with today. And actually something that I've been wrestling with quite a bit, uh, speaking of our kids and dancing and such, um, just trying to understand my son's personality more. Because um, quick parenting tip, because I don't have it figured out, but I've learned this, um, proper expectations reduces frustration. If you know what to expect, then you're not as frustrated. Say it again, say it again. Proper expectations reduces frustrations. And so I am constantly on this quest of trying to understand my kids so that I can not be as frustrated when they do something. Um, and a lot of times it's just guys that are much smarter than me saying they're acting like kids because they're kids and that's okay. Uh, but, but one thing that is just kind of weird and um, intriguing to me about my son is how excited he gets about things um, that, that I'm just not excited about. So for instance, I, I ended a meeting with um, Nick this week and, and actually um, as I'm leaving there, I realized like I've missed a phone call and a text message from my wife and it's like, uh-oh, that's not good. So I give her a call back and she has a flat tire. So um, her and the kids are at a park, flat tire. Um, it was making a noise, I don't know. We got to the park and it's flat. I'm like, oh, anyway, we'll, we'll leave it there. But you know, So I get to the park Yep, it's flat, but here's the thing, like, as I'm pulling in, like, I'm hundreds of yards away from where the car is, I see Leland, who has, like a hawk, saw my truck, and he's now, like, huge grin on his face, he is running, because he's going to be, like, he's excited about this, and as I'm parking, Dad, the front tire's flat, we're going to have to change it, and I'm just like, all right, like, I'm glad you're excited about this, um, and then that same night, like, okay, can you grill some chicken? So I'm on the back patio and the pool, the water is like ungodly cold. It's just like, don't touch it. Um, but I'm trying to grill chicken and the kids are doing this game where they're running around the pool. And I look over and like, I know exactly what's gonna happen here. This is so predictable. Someone or something is going in that water and I will have to get it out. You know what happens? That happens. Leland drops something in the water, and I look over, and he's got this huge grin on his face. It fell in. I'm like, what is the deal with this kid? Like, like, and so I'm thinking, does he like drama? Because he didn't get that from me. Like, does he like drama? He's ecstatic about when there's something wrong, he gets excited, and I just know that did not come from me. Um, and so I'm like filtering through all that and everything, and, and then I realize like, Oh, maybe that's not fair. There's another option. Like, what if he just likes a challenge? Like, maybe that's a way more positive way to view his personality. It's not that he likes drama, it's that he likes a challenge. And he wants to rise to the occasion. And then in my vanity, I'm like, well, that's, he got that from me. Like, I, I like a challenge. Um, but I'm left with the tension of deciding which of these two things am I going to believe? Which will I believe? And I'm like, hey, you're probably, yeah, this guy's a father? This is not good. <laughs> But that's a tension that we all carry, right? Yeah. Having to decide what to believe or not believe. Like, sometimes I want to believe something, but it's really difficult. Or sometimes I don't want to believe something, and it's really difficult to not believe that. And so we're in this tension to where what we want is certainty. We want to know something. We want some certainty. We're longing for that certainty. 
And so we're jumping into a new series. Um, this is bringing us up to Easter because um, we're actually part of, this is our annual rhythm. We'll talk about that a little more later. But as we come now towards Christmas, we're jumping into the gospel according to Luke. So if you have your copy of scripture, will you turn to Luke chapter one with me? Luke kind of close to the start of the New Testament. Um, this is the third gospel in order, as, as most of our scriptures are going to represent it. Luke chapter one, we're gonna launch into this today um, and cover a whopping four verses. So here we go. Some of you are like, I know how long Luke is. This isn't good. <laughs> <laughs> Luke chapter one, starting in verse one, says, many have undertaken to compile a narrative about the events that have been fulfilled among us just as the original eyewitnesses and servants of the word handed them down to us. It also seemed good to me, since I have carefully investigated everything from the very first to write to you in an orderly sequence, most honorable Theophilus, so that you may know the certainty of the things about which you have been instructed. All right, there are three questions. So type A personalities, three questions that I want us to wrestle through today on these four verses. Um, the first one is we just need to understand what are we looking at? Like, what is this? What is this is the first question. And so um, we have some clues right here. It tells us in these four verses a lot about what is being presented to us. One, it is a narrative. It is a narrative written by someone who has done a lot of investigating and it's addressed to someone of great importance, most honorable Theophilus. So someone is writing a narrative or like a story recording some things based on a lot of investigation that they've done, and they actually acknowledge that a lot of others have done this as well. But there's some benefit to me providing what I have investigated, and I'm sending this to you, Theophilus, most honorable Theophilus. So this is what this is. It is a gospel. Um, one of the four gospels, as we call them, that mark the beginning of the New Testament scriptures. You have Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And so Luke is one of these four. And yet when I say gospel, if I took a poll and had you all write out, what do you think I mean when I say gospel? It would be amazing to us to read the responses and how different the answers can be. That on the one hand, we think like, oh, we came to church. This is a church that says it's a gospel-centered church. They preach the gospel every week. So shouldn't we all know what the gospel is? And yet I ask you right now, what is the gospel? And do you think you're gonna answer it the same way that the person three seats over is going to answer it? Maybe. Maybe not. There are a lot of nuances to this, and so we really need to wrestle with what is a gospel. If this is a gospel, what is the gospel? And why is it that beloved church, if you've been here for any length of time, you've heard us explain that this is kind of our annual rhythm, is that we start leading up to Christmas with starting a gospel to get through the birth narrative, and then we take that to Easter with the death and resurrection and then the ascension for Mission Sunday following Easter. And we do this each year, and so here we come on year three, and here we are in the third gospel, Luke. And so what is gospel? It's often summarized in things like the four spiritual laws or four spiritual truths. Maybe you've heard some evangelism explosion demonstration or um, college crusade, different things. They'll have different presentations to articulate what the gospel is. Maybe you've heard the Romans road or somebody has knocked on your door with this weird thing that's called an evangel cube and they're like, is that a Rubik's cube? Is it, what is it? It's like, what is that? But they're all kind of sharing this idea of there's a storyline here of God created everything good. And so there's a God who existed when nothing else existed. I am that I am is how he addresses himself. And he creates everything. He creates it good. He creates everything good. 
And then the pinnacle of his creation, man, who's made in his own image to express who he is as his image to the world, to take dominion, to subdue the earth, to rule and reign with him over this planet. Man rebels against God. And so we fall and we're in this state of guilt and there's this curse that comes about that was promised. And so there's brokenness and now our relationships are fractured. The earth is not well. Like there's all this natural evil and just it's calamity on every level. We see it in our own hearts that we raise our children and this sin This missing the mark of God's holiness, this rebellion is genetic, it's in us, that I don't have to teach my kids to be selfish. It's just in us. There's something broken in us. And that seems hopeless, and yet in that despair, God, the creator, kindly and in love and grace tells his creation that just rebelled against him, I'm gonna make a way. Actually, from your seed, one will come who's gonna turn this all around. I'll be your salvation. And then we see thousands of years later, Jesus shows up. Jesus is God in human flesh. We're celebrating the advent that God has come, Emmanuel, God with us. Jesus is born and he lives a sinless life. Somehow he does not have the sin that has been imputed to all of us and he lives a sinless life. Then he dies a death on the cross that I deserve to be there. You deserve to be there in our sin. He takes our sin on himself And then he gives us his righteousness. He pays the penalty of our sin, offering us full forgiveness and freedom, life forevermore with him. And then he's gone, but he's not gone forever because he's coming back again. And so we live in this tension now where we're to advance his kingdom. We're to live, do these good works for his glory. We're to share this gospel, to share this to every nation. We want everyone to know there is hope. There is salvation. His name is Jesus. God has come to make a way. And he's gonna come back again. And when he comes back again, his enemies will stand no chance. He will put an end to all of the insanity and he will remake, he will renew all things. And we'll live as we were intended to be face to face with God, the God who will wipe away the tears from our eyes. Death will be no more, there'll be no more mourning. All the former things will have passed away. A restored, beautiful creation. And so all these different ways of presenting that gospel Like they they can each kind of highlight or focus on something different and I could have expounded that much, much longer. But there's just all of this and so it begs the question like what is actually the gospel? Like how do I respond if someone asks me what is the gospel? And I think there's something that I want to push on here. If you read the scriptures or you can even pull out your, your Bible app right now and you do a search for gospel of Christ or gospel of Jesus Christ or gospel of the glory of Christ, And look at how many times the New Testament writers would refer to the gospel as that. And think about that. It's not the gospel of what Jesus did. It's the gospel of Jesus. So what does that tell us? The gospel is all of these things. But the gospel is more than just the nuances of the forgiveness that you receive or the freedom you receive or the fellowship that you enjoy all of those things. That, yes, it is those things, but it's more what the gospel truly is, is God himself. It is Jesus. He is the gospel. And so when we have to capture what is the gospel, we need to see the gospel is everything about who Jesus is, what he said, what he did, what he is doing, and what he will do. It's all Jesus at the center. And that is truly good news for us, which is what gospel means, good news. 
It is good news. So we are reading a gospel. This is written by someone who's done a lot of investigation about Jesus, what he did, what he said, and what he will do, all these things, and he's writing to the most honorable Theophilus, an important person. It is a narrative, so it is a story. It's written by this guy, Luke. Wait, I didn't read that in there. How do I know it was Luke? And so we have to ask the question, how do we know Luke wrote this? The gospel according to Luke, how do we know that Luke wrote this? And so quickly, there's internal evidence and external evidence. Internal evidence, geek out on you for just a moment. Um, You may remember in the first year of Planting Beloved, we actually walked through the entire book of Acts. Acts is like chapter two or volume two of Luke. Luke wrote Luke, the gospel according to Luke, and Acts as one thing there. He may have wrote them at separate times, but it's to be brought together that this is Jesus, what he has done. He ascends, and now this is the church living in light in the presence of Jesus, going on mission for him. And so Luke wrote both of these volumes, and so if we look in the second volume, Luke uses language like we. You have the we sections which is just funny to me, I like Irish people. Uh, The we sections of of Luke, where Luke suddenly puts himself into the narrative and says, we set sail for such and such, or we came to such and such. We means Luke, the author, is putting himself in there, and so now we can kind of do some little scholarly stuff and say, well, we have these instances where Paul says, these are the people with me, and it's actually not a long list. There's only a handful of people who are traveling with Paul at various points, and Luke is in the we sections, he is included in that list. And so now we know, okay, it's gotta be part of this short list. Makes sense that it's him. Um, We also, we see things like uh, Luke and, uh, or Paul writes in Colossians 4.14 as he is wrapping up his letter to the church in Colossae, he says, Luke, the dearly loved physician, and Demas send you greetings. So again, now we know, oh, it's him. We can pull these things together and say, so Luke is most likely a traveling companion of the Apostle Paul, and he was apparently a Gentile physician. He's a doctor. And now it makes sense as we read the way that he writes and so forth, oh, this is who this guy is. This is how he knows these things. This is why he thinks in such a way that he investigates and all this stuff. Um, So pretty fascinating. That's a whole lot of stuff just to say, who wrote this? Luke. (laughs) There you go. So next question. Maybe you're a little more interested in Now the why. Why? Why would Theophilus, or any of us, like this gospel didn't just go to Theophilus, it's come to all of us. So why would Theophilus, or any of us, want this kind of report? Why would we want this kind of certainty that Luke is trying to provide? Why do we want this certainty? And the the answer is in verse four, it's pretty explicit. He says, so that you may know the certainty of the things about which you have been instructed. I want to point something out. That means Theophilus knew some things. He's saying you you can know the certainty about the things about which you have been instructed. Meaning Theophilus, you already know some of this. You have some prior knowledge here. You know these things, but I'm writing so that you can have certainty. Oh, oh, that's good. And many of you are like, yeah, I I, like I know some things about this this Bible, the gospel. I know this this Jesus story, but still have some doubts still have some questions. I don't really know about this or that. And Luke is writing saying, I'm doing this so that you can have certainty. And that's a beautiful assurance to us. It's so relevant to today in two great ways that I see. And the first, this is not original to me, but I have no idea who to attribute it to. Um, Gospel inoculation. 
uh, we're, we're living, hopefully, towards the end of a global pandemic. And so you hear so much about vaccines and, and the idea of an inoculation, that you can get injected with something that's like a small part of something to get exposure to it and your body can respond and everything and build up antibodies and be ready to defend so that when the real thing comes, you're okay and you're not affected by it. That's the idea of an inoculation. Gospel inoculation is this idea that we live in the South. And while I think culturally we don't fit very well with the, the Bible Belt South, um, we think we do. You look around here and you think like, man, look at the number of massive churches. And the Jesus is the reason for the season cliche bumper stickers and signs and like all these different things. And I'm not saying they're wrong, but like it's all over the place. The evidence of Christendom the prominence of Christianity is still visible in the cultural landscape. And so it's easy for us to think, and this is what I encounter so often every day of my life as I try to talk with people about the gospel, is that so many people have heard enough about the gospel and have kind of run to conclusions about what the Christian faith is and all this stuff that they think they know it, but in reality, they know enough that now they've just kind of built up a wall. That the real thing is like, what? No, <laughs> that's not it. And it becomes hard to penetrate that defense and actually present what is the true gospel here. So we live in a culture like that. It's where, yeah, I know, like I, I ask many of you over the last couple of weeks, when's the last time you shared your faith and it was effective? Like somebody responded with their own faith. And it's like really, really saddening to hear how rare that is. And I'm not putting that on you. I'm just saying, like, it's, it's been something in my mind for a long time now, like, do we need to change the way in which we share our faith? Because the, like, presentation form just doesn't seem to work very well in our culture. And I think a lot of that is due to this idea of gospel inoculation. Everybody thinks they know the gospel enough that they're not actually listening to the gospel. And so we have to engage in a different way that becomes more than a presentation, becomes an ongoing conversation and relationship and they need to see the, the apology of our life, meaning the defense of our faith exhibited, it's lived out in us. So gospel inoculation is one way that this is incredibly relevant for us. And the other one that I want us to kind of spend the rest of our time with is this idea of deconstruction. Some of you are like, oh, we're gonna talk about this in church? Like, it's happening? And others of you are like, what is that? I don't know. <laughs> That's okay. But I think everybody is familiar with what has become very, very commonplace is that you turn on the news, you open your scrolling feed, whatever it is, and you hear about some celebrity pastor or some celebrity worship leader or some celebrity author or just someone who's well-known who was an outspoken Christian who suddenly says, I no longer believe and I've walked away from the faith. And the language that they often use is, I have deconstructed. You have entire, like some of the most popular podcasts right now in the spiritual realm are about deconstruction. And it's this idea of just tearing apart. So construction, you're building something, deconstruction, to tear it down. And, and I want you to know a few things about this. One, not all deconstruction is bad. There's a healthy deconstruction that we should all go through in seasons and waves in different ways. In fact, Jesus actually taught um, in deconstructive ways at times, like the Sermon on the Mount. You've heard it said, Thou shalt not, but I say to you. And he's not, he's not deconstructing the scriptures. He's deconstructing the way that people have interpreted the scriptures. But for him to build the kingdom, to build and instill, this is what it's going to look like to live under my rule and reign, to follow me. 
he first has to tear down some things. So deconstruction is not always bad. Just know that. Um, but then we have to wrestle with um, this, this what, what about when I, like, I start to deconstruct and it creates this crisis? Like, I felt like I was certain on some things, but now I don't have certainty. And now I'm questioning everything and like, oh, what if I just walk away and just all these different things? And just hear me this, clearly, clearly hear me this. God can handle your doubts and questions. He's not afraid of them. I'm gonna say this again later, but please run to God with your questions, not away from him. Run to him. The bottom line of all of this is that Theophilus is receiving this letter so that he can have certainty. You are receiving this letter. I am receiving this letter. We are hearing the voice of God in this letter because we can't have certainty about the gospel. We can know with certainty the gospel. Um, but as we wrestle with that idea of deconstruction, um, there are varied reasons for deconstruction. Um, Joshua Butler is much smarter than I am and he proposes four reasons and so I'll share them briefly with you. Um, deconstruction often is attributed to church hurt You've been hurt by a church. And so in that pain, it's easy to flee from that pain. Like you put your hand on the stove and it burns you. What should you do? You should remove your hand. And so it's very natural, logical, that you would separate yourself from the hurt. And so in that deconstruction of separating yourself from the hurt, that is a major reason. Or bad teaching. A lot of people deconstruct because they hear bad teaching. That actually logically did not line up. There were inconsistencies in the way that that man tried to present truth. And so bad teaching, or um, this one's very popular and we don't like to talk about it, but really just a desire to sin. That I have selected a lifestyle or, or just whatever kind of vice it is that, you know what? I don't like the shame that I feel. So if I just separate myself from this faith, then I don't need to feel that shame and I can just enjoy this sin. Um, that's a large reason. Or the last one he offers is street cred. Uh, doubt is actually very hip right now. It is cool to question your faith. Um, it's, it's sad, but it's very cool culturally for you to question everything. And so it builds street cred. And then he offers, like, what's the actual... As you, as you encounter these things, which we're all going to encounter at some level because we're broken humans and... We're going to fail each other. So what do we do in response to these things like church hurt? You know what the answer to church hurt is? It's not deconstruction. It's grief and lament. To be honest about the way that we're hurt and we feel and allow others to step into that healing process or bad teaching. Do you know what the answer to bad teaching is? Good teaching. <laughs> yeah, good teaching. Or the desire to sin, which is in all of us. We talked about this a few weeks ago, that works of the flesh and fruit of the spirit, this battle of raging desires. What is the answer to that? Confession and repentance, which is the ongoing posture of the heart of a Christian. Confess, repent, or street cred, which is really just screaming, you need to crucify yourself. Kevin's image must die. I must no longer live for myself and live for God. But even in that one, the, the street cred one, this, this is just now me kind of adding my own thoughts. Um, I so often encounter people who are deconstructing or questioning the faith, wrestling with the scripture and all these things. And what I find is, this is, wait, 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 wait. Is this your question? It doesn't sound like it's your question. It sounds like it's someone else's question. 
and you heard their question, and now you've just latched onto it and made it your question. And I think before you can answer that question, we actually need to back up and talk about a lot of other questions. Um, but that's, that's globalization and the digital revolution that now I have access to everyone's questions and everyone's rants and their theories and all this stuff. And like in a way that's beautiful because we have more information available than ever before. But it's also terrifying because we have more information than ever before. <laughs> and so we need to be honest and humble to say like, I'm actually not ready to step into that conversation yet. I need to start back here. And then maybe one day that will become my question. But the danger is so often we're just thrown into the deep end. It's like, ugh. <gasps> I've never considered that. Like, well, we gotta consider a lot of other things before we can consider that. Um, so, is it your question? And then I want to add a fifth. Um, and this is just from my own personal experience. I've experienced all of those. Um, but, but another one that I would like to add, I would like to propose that what is behind many of my seasons, and I think many of your seasons, of doubting and deconstruction is thinking or feeling like God is far. When your lived experience, intellectually or in your feelings or whatever, is that God is not near. He's distant. I don't feel him. I, I'm crying out for you. Where are you at? Then it's so easy for us to start to question so many things. Like John the Baptist. He's preparing the way. He is the prophesied one about which would prepare, make straight the way of the Lord. Like he says, this is the one. He's emphatic, like this is the Messiah, all this stuff. He seems like that guy has a certainty. Like he knows Jesus is the one. And then John is thrown in prison. And you know what John does? He starts to doubt and question things. And so he sends some of his disciples, go ask my cousin Jesus, you really the one? <laughs> I just want to make sure here. And what does Jesus do? Like, John, you idiot! <laughs> You're, how could you not know? What are you doing? No. He comforts him and he reassures him. So it's okay. Like, bring your doubts, bring your questions to God. Even when you're in prison and it feels like this is all going wrong, like, where are you, God? No. Don't turn to that. Don't turn to thinking or feeling like God is distant and letting that be the undoing of your faith. Um, this often looks like uh, deism, which is kind of a belief in some divine being that, or like the clockmaker theory, right? kind of like this, this engineer who designs a clock and like it's so intricate, requires really, really, really great ingenuity. And so he puts it all together, winds it up, and then just steps back, like let it go. And sometimes we feel like that. Like, okay, God, I believe you're there. I believe you started all this, but then he just kind of like stepped away. And here we are living with all this insanity. Like, why are you so far? Where did you go? But this is the beauty of the gospel, of Christmas. That in all of our insanity, in all of the mess that is creation, because of creation, the creator steps into creation. He steps in and is near. The transcendent God who is over all things is also imminent, that he comes in and he's close to us. Jesus has come. God himself is here. This is the beauty of the gospel. And so you've got to fixate on the glory, the strength, the presence of God, his nearness. Don't fixate on your doubts and your questions. Ask them and look for answers and employ the community of faith around you. Don't shy away from them. But don't obsess over them more than you obsess over God and his strength, his might, his presence, that he is here. He is with us. Again, take your doubts and your questions to him rather than away from him. So we're decision-making beings constantly deciding what to do in light of the things around us, how we interpret them, 
We have to know he is near. You have to see that he is near. It's like this time recorded in the, in the scriptures in 2 Kings when the king of Aram is waging war against Israel and there's a prophet, Elisha. And Elisha, um, he, he's got this like special connection with God where he, he knows things that he doesn't see necessarily. And so he's telling the king of Israel, the king of Aram, he's gonna set up camp here. So you might wanna stay away from there. And so the Israelites are like, oh, we're gonna go over here. And then they're like, all right, well, we're gonna set up camp over here. And he's like, hey, they're coming over here. We're going over here. And so it's just like whack-a-mole. Like they're always like, they're somehow getting away. And the king of Aram, is, he like comes to his council. He's like, listen, one of you is a traitor. Who's telling this dude where we're gonna be? Because like every time we try to make a move to catch them and kill them, they're gone. Which one of you is telling? And they're like, none of us. There's this prophet, Elisha. It's like he's in your bedroom. He just knows all these things and he tells the king. Like, oh, this Elisha guy. And so the king at one point finds out Elisha's in the city, Dotham. We know where he's at. And so he amasses a massive army. An army so big that it surrounds the entire city. The entire city is surrounded by this massive army where Elisha is. And Elisha's there, apparently taking a nap. I don't know if it's nighttime, whatever. He wakes up and he has a servant there. And I'll read it for you. This is just so funny to me. This is what happens. It says, when the servant of the man of God got up early and went out, he discovered an army with horses and chariots surrounding the city. So he asked Elisha, oh, my master, what are we to do? And I imagine Elisha, Lord, you wake me up. Don't be afraid. For those who are with us outnumber those who are with them. Just imagine the servant like, no, 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 like peeking out the door. There's an army all the way around the city. What, Elisha? Me and you, man. <laughs> we got this. <laughs> then Elisha prayed, Lord, please open his eyes and let him see. So the Lord opened the servant's eyes and he saw that the mountain was covered with horses and chariots of fire all around Elisha. He's not far. And I want you to see that today. Like maybe you won't see it with your eyes, but did you know, like, I'm fully convinced, based on the word of God, the beloved church gathered at 350 East Avenue, Claremont, Florida today. Do you think the enemy wanted that to happen? No. Do you think the enemy wants me to share the hope of God's word with you right now? Do you think the enemy would want to take action against the things that we are doing to encourage and equip each other? Absolutely. Do you think he would mobilize his demons to come and attack and oppress, to try to put some kind of influence over us, to create division and strife and doubt and all this stuff? Absolutely. He knows he's lost. And so his plan is to just harass the children of God as much as he can. But don't you think our Father in heaven, who commands the hosts of heaven, do you think he doesn't know that? Do you think he would not mobilize his own angel armies to surround us even now, fighting and standing guard, saying, no, these are the Lord's, and you have no place here? Now open your eyes and know that there's more than what you see here. He is near, and he loves us. He is fighting for us. God is near. He's in control. You must see that even if the path forward looks like a cross, if it looks like death and defeat, he's with us. And it's actually victory. 
Because the greatest sin of all humanity, the murder of the only innocent man to have ever lived, Jesus, who is also God, when it looked like death and the evil forces had prevailed over life and good, when all of that seemed like it was unraveling, that God was being defeated, this was actually the exaltation of the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. This was the conquest of all sin and all death that would forever be stopped. This was Jesus exalted on high in glory, his hour of glory. This is victory. This is the nearness of God. Jesus has come to us. And so there's nothing the enemy can do. There is no more condemnation for us who are in Christ. We're free. And we are his. He is with us. So take your questions, take your doubts to him, not away from him. You can have certainty of the gospel. Know this. See the cross. And so last question as we conclude. Third question. Why would Luke want to write this? So we know why Theophilus or you or I would want to receive this. We want the certainty. But why would Luke write this? And part of that's answered in the second question, well, to provide certainty. But there's more. This is obedience. That Jesus told us to go. Like you've received good news. You know how loved you are. Now take this good news and share it with all the nations. Everyone. Tell everyone. Tell the world about this God who so loves it that he gave his only son so whoever believes in him will have everlasting life. Never perish. This is good news. Take it. And so Luke is like, I'm gonna take it. I'm gonna use all of my giftings. I'm a doctor. I'm great at investigating. I'm gonna investigate the mess out of all of this and I'm gonna compile it and think like, I have something to add to this conversation. Here you go, Theophilus. You can know with certainty. I've investigated, so know this. This is love for God. This is love for others. This is the importance of sharing your faith. And so um, I have a, a paper airplane pen. You got a pen with the triangle VC logo. Merry Christmas from Beloved Church. Um, you are Beloved Church, so it's kind of like, like, oh, I bought myself something. That's cool. But this is, this is a paper airplane I designed because I'm an amateur graphic designer. And it says, I bring good news. And it's a reminder to me that like a paper airplane, like you don't just make a paper airplane to look at it. Like, you know, throw that thing. That I'm to be sent out. I'm to go places. And as I go places, I'm to take this good news. And so everywhere I go, I need to be like Luke, that, hey, I bring good news. And how beautiful, how bright of a light will that be in the darkness that is today's age? If when I show up, my MO is, hey, I bring good news. In every situation, I bring good news because I bring the God who's always with me. And I want to tell you about him. I want to tell you this gospel. And so actually, I, I've made four, I don't know, hundreds of them. And so as you leave today, I'm going to give you one. And I want this to be a reminder to you. Put it on your favorite jacket. Put it on your hat. Put it on your backpack. Put it on your purse. Whatever you need to do. Put it somewhere where it's going to be visible. And let that be a reminder to you as you go throughout this Christmas season. This is what I live for. The God is near me. He has come. This is good news. And now I get to take this good news everywhere I go. And share this good news. Make it an ongoing conversation with people. Invite them into the community of faith. Celebrate this good news. Live in light of it. Your families, your friends, your coworkers, all of the people in your life, even your enemies, they need to hear that there's a God who loves us and has made a way. And so, Last thing I'll say, this week I've just, I, I obsess over songs at times. Um, and, and the song that's just been like the soundtrack in my mind this week has been How Marvelous 
It's an old hymn, but it's, I love the, the lines of that, and it's, it's like it kind of has dictated the outline of this sermon. I didn't realize it until after I had developed the sermon, but um, it's just, it's working in my mind constantly, but the, the song begins and says, I stand amazed in the presence of Jesus the Nazarene. I stand amazed in the presence of Jesus the Nazarene. That makes me think of Luke and what this whole idea of the gospel is. That here I am in the presence of God. The presence. And I can address my doubts and include little details like he's a Nazarene. He grew up in Nazareth. The little things. But I stand amazed in the presence to know his nearness. And then it continues in the next line. It says, and wonder I wonder how he could love me, a sinner condemned unclean. That we respond to his presence with wonder. That's actually a natural questioning. What? But also an awe of, wow. An assurance of I'm here with you, God, because you came to me. When I could never come to you, you came to me. And they break out in the chorus and just say, how marvelous, how wonderful. And my song shall ever be, how marvelous, how wonderful is my Savior's love for me. That because I'm in the presence of God and I'm assured and I'm awestruck in his presence, I'll sing a song. I will share, because the essence of singing is to share. I will sing of his love for me. I will share his love for me. I will go and I will bring good news. And so as we enter a time of communion, we come to the table and there are elements around which you remember, this is for the believer. We're to examine our heart. And in examining our hearts, let us see that he is near and he has made the way through his own sacrifice that Jesus has died, his body like the bread, broken for us, the blood like the cup, poured out for the forgiveness of sins. This is our salvation. This is how we know the nearness of God as we ingest the elements to remind us of Christ and his sacrifice, that now he is in us in this sense. To know the nearness of him. And then we will sing. We will sing that we stand amazed in his presence. And we wonder how he could love us. But forever our song will be, how marvelous, how wonderful is his love for me.